Well, praise the Lord for the great music and the great spirit that exists in this place. I'm just uh, blessed every time I'm able to be with you, and I mean that. Our Lord ministers to me by just singing with you and seeing your spirit and your love for the Lord and love for one another, and I thank you for it. Uh, how many of you got a good Baptist nap this afternoon? All right, how many plan to get one while I'm preaching tonight? All right, good, good. I understand, I understand. Well... I'm a napper, and I enjoyed getting a good nap this afternoon, and uh, again, looking forward to the week and what the Lord is doing uh, in our lives. And I can assure you that I've tried to give some thought as to the strategy of what the Lord wants us to do this week. Uh, you know, you, the temptation is uh, to just grab a bunch of sermons that have some maybe cool illustrations or stories that you know people will enjoy, but that's certainly not what I want to do. I want to do what the Lord would use to just benefit our lives. And so, Lord willing, I mean, unless he leads me otherwise, and uh, I think we're going to look over the next couple of nights, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, um, we're going to look at what the Lord wants for his church and for his people. And we're going to take a look at the uh, high priestly prayer of Christ and see how he's praying for his people and what he wants for us. And I think we'll be challenged by that unless the Lord leads me in another direction. But tonight... I really feel like the message I'm going to preach tonight is the essence of revival. I mean, really, this is the, I don't know, this is the one-size-fits-all message. All right, it doesn't matter where you are in your walk of life. It doesn't matter how close you are to the Lord right now or how far you're away from the Lord right now. I promise you that if we would listen to this truth tonight, it's the one-size-fits-all for revival and for church ministry. And I just hope that the Lord will use it tonight. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, please? Matthew chapter 22. And uh, let's stand together when you find that there. I know I didn't give you a whole lot of time, but Matthew 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll find that in the Gospels. Matthew 22. And I want to begin reading in verse 34, and we will read to verse 40. I like to hear the turning of the pages there. I know a lot of people are using iPads and cell phones, and I'm not, I'm not again, I see a couple of you have that, but I, I heard a preacher say not too long ago, I like, I like a Bible you can open up that you don't have to charge up. <laughs> that was pretty good, that was pretty good. So, not picking on anybody, but I like the, uh, the hearing of the rustling of the pages, and I'm glad you brought your Bibles tonight. It says, verse 34, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And don't you get the impression there, I, I do anyway, that when he asked this question, Jesus wasn't going, hmm, hmm, let me... No, I mean, he goes, okay, I'll give it to you. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So again, this is one size fits all here. The whole Bible hangs on what Jesus has said right here. And so let's take a look at this tonight, okay? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of being in this place. Thank you for the great music and the great fellowship we've had with you and with one another. And I pray as we gather around your Bible tonight that you would just use it as an instrument and a tool 
in our lives to help us to grow in this area. Lord, we want to obey you, and we especially want to obey you in this area. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate you standing. When I graduated from Bible college and was given the opportunity to serve at a church, I was so excited. I I was just very thankful for the privilege to be able to be in the ministry. I could not believe that the Lord had called me into ministry, and now I get to be, I get to be paid for what the Lord has called me to do. It was just a great thrill for me, and so I became an assistant pastor. I was a very young man, and um, you know, at 22 years of age, I was the low man on the totem pole, and so I had the privilege of doing whatever I was told to do, and uh, that involved a lot of different things. Uh, from hanging Christmas lights on the church to cleaning the church to, uh, you know, being a bus director and youth director and all kinds of things in between. And one of my responsibilities was I was given the responsibility of being the varsity basketball coach at our Christian school. And I enjoyed that and uh, I had a lot of fun with that. I uh, used to love to play a lot of basketball and was never great at it, but I sure liked to play it. And so I enjoyed coaching it a little bit. And um, so we, we had some success and did well. I think every year I coached, we won our conference and I certainly won a whole lot more games than we lost. And so when I got older and had children of my own, I was very excited about sports and those kind of things. And so as my son, who's now 16, he'll be 16 on tomorrow, uh, he began to play some basketball, and I remember I had the opportunity to coach his 10-year-old team. I thought this would be a piece of cake. Man, I coach varsity ball. I, I, I know how to uh, run some uh, 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 movement offenses, and I know how to give, pre- present some uh, defenses, and so we went to, went to work and worked on a motion offense, and man, I, uh, our little community had a draft, and I got the number one draft pick, and I kid you not, I drafted a kid in our community for a 10-year-old. This guy could really play some basketball, but he had one of the strangest names I have seen before, never seen before and not have seen since. This young man's name, and I kid you not, was Po' Boy. That, that was his name. We called him Poe for short. I, I, either he was extremely poor or his dad really liked the sandwich. I'm not sure which one it was, but the kid could play some basketball. And so I thought with this kid on the team and a couple other kids that we had, surely we'll run through this office. And I just focused and focused and focused on that motion offense. And we're going to score some buckets. This kid can move. He can shoot. It's really great. we got a great offensive scheme. And so we started out and we played our very first game after weeks of practice and preparation. And when I got in the gym and we started playing that game, the coach across the bench from me along the way, apparently he had coached 10-year-old basketball before and I never had. And he did not work on offense at all. His philosophy was the kids will figure out how to score. Everybody wants to score. So all he had done was worked on defense. You've heard that old mantra, defense wins championships. Well, in 10-year-old basketball, I guess it does because he won the league. And, and uh, what they had worked on was a half-court trap off, uh, defense. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care how many good players I had. Every one of the players I did have couldn't, they, they couldn't figure out how to dribble. They couldn't figure out how to pass. They couldn't get close enough to the basket to shoot it. I mean, we got destroyed because we completely forgot in our complexity the basics of basketball, dribble, shoot, pass. We forgot all of that. And I'm telling you tonight, I think the same thing happens to churches and happens to Christians. We get caught up in doing ministry, we could say doing church, that we forget the basics of Christianity. But everything we do well is the result of mastering the basics. 
You, you, you understand that I've used the sports metaphor and illustration already, but even when football will start up in the fall, and I, man, that's my favorite time of the year as far as seasons, and I love college football, and when football starts out, I don't care what level you are, uh, kid age, high school, college, uh, pro, the football practices start with doing drills. you got to get the basics down. I'm thankful in my house, not only do we focus on athletics and academics, but we like to focus on music in our house. And so my children all play instruments. And I'm, I'm thankful that my children have, have progressed in the areas of their music skills, but especially in the piano. All five of my children play the piano. And let me tell you, it's torture listening to them start their scales. Uh, my son, who's going to be 16, he's a pretty exceptional piano player, and I love to hear him play, especially classical pieces. I mean, he can sit down and play Bach and all of that, and it's just really a blessing to hear. But, man, when he was a little kid, he would play those scales, and then he would play. I remember him going through a phase where, I'm literally, he would just sit there and play Pop Goes the Weasel. I wanted to kill the kid. I really did. But I kept having visions of Bach and Rachmaninoff in my head, and finally we have got there. But as he plays the cello and my kids play the violin and the piano, I, I can hear them. No matter what level of skill that they are, you can hear them doing their scales, getting back to the basics. What do we mean when we say get back to the basics? We mean returning to the main principles, the fundamentals of something. And that is exactly what Jesus does here in this passage, is he's returning us back to the basics of our faith. Let me just kind of go, uh, go through with you what has been taking place in this chapter. Jesus, first of all, fielded a political question from his enemies. His enemies were constantly trying to trip him up. They didn't like Jesus, they didn't like his ministry, they didn't like the attention that he was drawing. They sit, certainly did not like the idea that common people were, were flocking to him. They did not like the idea that he was claiming to be the Messiah, that he was claiming to be uh, the very Son of God in the flesh. And, and they were bothered by him, so they wanted to discredit him in any way possible. And so what they did earlier in the chapter is they have a group that is going to come and they're going to ask him a, a political question in hopes to discredit him. Do you remember this? They go and they say, is it lawful for us to pay the taxes? Now, how many of you wish Jesus would have given a different answer than he did? Oh, I, I do. I, I, I think I wish he would have said, no, don't pay your taxes. Praise the Lord. No. But he said, bring me a coin. Show me a coin. And I mean, you couldn't trick this guy up, Jesus. You know, he said, bring me a coin. Whose inscription is on this coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, then you give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. But don't you love how he gives that little stab there? He says, but listen, always give to God the things that belong to God. It's like what we talked about this morning, whose image is stamped on us, the likeness and image of God. So Caesar never gets our worship. Only that belongs to God himself. And they were like, oh, they foiled again, you know. And then another group comes and they don't ask him a political question. They ask him a theological question. And it's a real goofy one like a lot of theological questions you might read on the internet. And they come to him and they say, well, I've got a question for you. Let's suppose that a man has a wife. And that man dies, but he didn't have any children. And so you know, according to Old Testament law, his brother should marry her. And he does marry her, but he doesn't have any children. And then he dies. And another brother marries her, and then they don't have any children. And then he dies. And they go through this seven times. Now, as, as I'm reading the Bible, I'm sure some of you are thinking this right now. If you are that fourth brother, and you're saying, I don't want to marry her. I, I really don't. 
you know? But they go through this seven times, and, and, and they're trying to trip Jesus up and get him to say something. And you remember, he, he ends up answering them, and he says, listen, you guys are asking goofy questions. Really, they, this was the group of the Sadducees. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And he says, you're making a big mistake. You need to err because you don't understand the Scriptures, for one. And he takes them back to Moses and says, Moses quoted about a resurrection, so there is a resurrection. And he says, and furthermore, you don't understand the power of God. And they, they kind of walk away with their tails tucked between their legs and kind of disappointed that they uh, weren't uh, successful in tripping him up. And so now, in, in like a third wave of an attack, he's going to now deal with an ethical question. The Pharisees were glad that Jesus had proved the Sadducees wrong about Moses. They were certainly happy about that because the Pharisees hated the Sadducees, but they equally hated Jesus. And so now they said, well, I guess the Sadducees couldn't get it done. And if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So here you go. And the Pharisees go up and they're going to ask Jesus a question. And again, understand tonight, the purpose of asking the question was to discredit him so that they could turn the people against him. And I want to remind you as God's people tonight, it's never wrong to ask questions. It's good to ask questions. It's how we learn. And God is not shy about our questions, but there's difference between asking legitimate questions and questioning. And so here they are, they're attacking him, and they're really kind of getting after him. Now here's what they're going to do. Because the Pharisees, you understand, they were the premier enemy of God. And they loved rules and traditions. Oh, they loved rules and traditions. In fact, we understand that they had documented 613 commandments. Now, I've never counted them. I've just always taken the commentator's word for it. But 613, and I'm told that they broke them down in 248 positive ones and 365 negative ones. Can you imagine that? Uh, 365, that number pops in our head. That's how many days are in a year. I mean, could you imagine dropping your kids off for school and say, okay, well, today is March the 3rd, and so what's the negative commandment for today? Uh, you know, I mean, that's just kind of how they lived their life with all of these rules. But when you have 613 commandments, no one could ever hope to know them all. So what they had done is they separated them into heavy, or, or we could say important, and light, or we could say unimportant. But the problem was that nobody could come to an agreement as to what was heavy and what was light. You know, that makes sense, right? I mean, have you ever had somebody who told you you could lose your salvation? You ever known somebody that could, said you could believe that, that you could lose your salvation? I've always asked somebody, well, what sins do you have to commit in order to lose your salvation? And I've always gotten different answers. Nobody can ever agree on which these sins are, you know? And, and they would debate over what were heavy and what were light and what were these important and unimportant sins, and they would spend these countless hours compiling these lists and debating them. It's kind of like what we would do if you're a sports fan. Who was the best basketball player? You know, and most people I know, that they would say, well, Michael Jordan. But now you're having a generation of young people that didn't see Michael Jordan play. And so they're saying, well, LeBron James. And I always think to myself, how can you compare? Because one is a different body size and a different position. Because if you want to talk championships, Bill Russell was the greatest basketball player of all time. But if you want to talk about who scored the most points, and all you can is people can say, yay, for Wilt Chamberlain. I mean, how, how, how are we going to decide? And you can st sit around in the barbershop all day long and argue about who the greatest basketball basketball player ever was we could talk about who was his greatest president 
Oh, it has to be George Washington. I mean, George Washington had his own pocket, helped pay for the Continental Army, and he held this nation together, and he was the founding father of our nation. Oh, no, it was Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he led us through the most difficult time. No, it was Thomas Jefferson. He's the greatest mind. And somebody might say Donald Trump, and I don't know what you're thinking. But anyway, uh, uh, who was the best president? I went to Google, and I typed in who was the best, and I don't know, it just popped up. You know how they give you uh, uh, suggested things? It said, who is the greatest Pokemon? We could sit around and argue about that all day long. And the Pharisees, they loved to argue. They loved to debate. And they loved to talk about what the greatest commandment was. And what they were really good at is they were really good at splitting hairs. You understand what splitting hairs means? Here's a textbook definition of it, to argue energetically over very small differences or trivial points in order to win an argument at all costs or to divert attention from the main point. You ever met somebody like that? Are you somebody like that? I think sometimes we, I don't know about you, but I don't mind every once in a while an argument just for an argument's sake. Don't look at me like that. I know some of you are like that completely. Splitting hairs means to argue about very small differences or unimportant details. Meaning this, the Pharisees had made the trivial important and the important trivial. Remember what Jesus said about this? I love how he used hyperbole and he said this about the Pharisees. He says, listen, you blind guides, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. So what was he saying? He's saying, look, you get all choked up at a bug, and every one of us has swallowed a bug inadvertently. You know, he says, you choke, and you can't even swallow a little tiny gnat, but uh, uh, you get choked on that, but you'll swallow a camel. You have got your priorities. You've got everything backward and all mixed up. Uh, for example, Jesus talked about how they, they emphasized how you cleaned the cups, and they had no emphasis on the, how you cleaned your heart. Can you imagine that? Hey, you're washing those dishes. You say, I can't imagine that. My mother-in-law is just like that. Well, the Pharisees were like your mother-in-law then. You're not washing those cups right. Jesus said, hey, but you're not worried about the heart. I've seen that happen in church life so many times. I mentioned to you that I have grown up in church all my life. I've seen a lot of wonderful things. I've seen a lot of idiotic things. And, and I'm blessed to pastor a good group of people. And I'm glad that we're growing in the Lord. But it's very easy for us to get on uh, uh, things that are trivial and minimize the importance of things that are not trivial. And I remember one time our church that I'm currently pastoring... We've been through some hard, difficult times, and I'm thankful that our church is growing and nearly doubled in the three years that I've been there, and it's just been a blessing to see. But I remember when I first got there, the church was just in a low state and a difficult time, and we needed the Lord to really do something great in our midst. And man, people were starting to come and join our church, and people were getting saved, and we had baptized somebody, uh, several people. And I remember a guy came up to me, and here we are, we had added some new members, and we had baptized some folks, and this guy came up to me, and he was as mad as a hornet and he said we don't have any paper towels in the bathroom well can i take a church vote with you tonight how many think it's a good thing to have paper towels stocked in the bathroom Man, that's a blessing i'm all for it 
And uh, we try and do our best about it. And I've got a wonderful facilities manager that does a good job trying to keep the place clean and keep it stocked. And I'm, I'm all for a church doing things professionally. But I'm going to tell you right now, I would like to publicly declare that I would love to go to a church that keeps the paper towel stopped in the bathroom. But I would much rather go to a church where lives are being changed and the church is growing and the baptismal waters are being stirred. And it is very, very easy for mankind to get his eyes on the fact that there are no paper towels in the bathroom while people are getting saved and baptized. And the Pharisees were like that. They, 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 they just, you don't do it right. They were cranky and grouchy. And so in verse 37, they come to Jesus and they ask the question, what is the greatest commandment? Because they figured that no matter how Jesus answered, they could argue with him. It didn't matter what he said. You understand that out of all of these commandments, the two that were at the top, the two that they thought were the most important, were maybe you could guess them. I want to keep you awake tonight and keep you with me. Somebody help me out and tell me, what do you think one of those on the top of their list, one or two? It'd be like Michael Jordan in basketball. He's got to be up there. Not kill? Okay. Not commit adultery? I'm thinking of two. We're not on quite the same page. That's good. I like to hear what you have to say. See how we can debate all this all day long? I was thinking, what'd you say, Sabbath? Yeah, that's one that's on my list. Do you remember how they were mad at Jesus all the time about what he did on the Sabbath? If he healed a man on the Sabbath, he cast out a demonic man on, uh, on the Sabbath. Uh, I mean, they're always on. I mean, I always love that. I thought this as a little boy. Jesus and his disciples are going through and they pull some ears off the corner of the field. You remember that? That was lawful. That was legal to do. But they did it on the Sabbath and the Pharisees were angry about him. I, I always think it was like I grew up when my grandma would used to watch Hee Haw. You remember that? I was thinking about them Pharisees coming up out of the corn like Hee Haw. You're like, what you doing? Now I say, well, what are they doing out there on the Sabbath? Anybody ever think that? What are you doing out here on the Sabbath? How do you know I'm getting corn on the Sabbath if you're not at home with your feet up doing what you're supposed to do? They were always bent out of shape on the Sabbath. The other one I think that I'm thinking of might be a little bit difficult for you, but I think this is a big, big deal. You've got to think, think of an Israelite mind. Circumcision. Well, that's a big, big deal. That identified them as a people group, and that, that was a huge, huge deal. I mean, they would even say it, those uncircumcised Philistines. I mean, they were passionate about that. And so if G they, figured, they figured that if Jesus would look at them and say, well, I think the Sabbath day is the most important, they would say, oh, you're crazy, circumcision. If he said circumcision, they would say, no, the Sabbath day distinguishes us as the people of God. That was something that he gave to the nation of Israel, and they thought that they could argue with him no matter what he said it didn't matter and the wonderful thing is Jesus looks at him and he doesn't go hmm let me think about it no he looks them right square in their God-given eyeballs and he doesn't hesitate for one minute and he doesn't say circumcision he doesn't say Sabbath day he doesn't say don't kill he doesn't say don't commit adultery he looks at him and he says I'm gonna tell you right now you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and let me give you a bonus love your neighbors yourself Wow he takes them right back to Deuteronomy 6. He takes them to the Shema. That was a statement of faith that was quoted two times a day by any devout Jew. He takes them right to that. And that's what I love about Jesus. Don't you love this about our Savior? He was a master at reducing complex issues of his day, and even to ours, to simple truths. 
Don't you love how God does that? Because I'm a simple guy. Look, my name's Michael Jones. I mean, it doesn't get much more simple than that. I mean, if I was Hispanic, I'd be Juan Hernandez, man. I mean, it's just, I am so, it's just, just common. So give it to me straight. Put it to me simple, you know? And he takes 613 commandments, don't you love that in the Bible, and, and reduces those 613. I told you, I've never counted them. I don't know them like that. But he takes them down to 10. I can handle that. Uh, if you're a Christian here, we get bent out of shape if they take the Ten Commandments out of schools and courthouses, but most Christians, I don't know, couldn't even tell you the Ten. It's not that hard. I could tell them to you. Ten Commandments. But I love how Jesus takes even that, and he makes it even more simple for us. He boils it down to just two. And I've always liked that. You've heard it, kiss, the kiss method, keep it simple, stupid. I like that. I can, I can handle that. Less oftentimes is more, and that's what Jesus does. He looks at him and he says, do it simply and simply do it. Let's think about our churches for a moment. It's really not that complex. The life of the church is worship. Oh boy, didn't we have some of that tonight? Boy, I'm going to tell you what. If your choir would just sing out a little bit more, if it, just a little bit. Man, I was just listening and I was out of breath, you know? But that's the life of the church. Worshiping and adoring God, you know, praising Him for what He's done and worshiping Him for who He is. That's the life of the church. But the growth of the church is preaching. And I know that you have an emphasis in your ministry on preaching and how important it is for the little kids and the teenagers and the pulpit of this church. The growth of the church is preaching. And the mission of the church is outreach. It is not that complicated. But here's what we find is these two commandments that Jesus gives today in this passage... We're basic, and they touch all of life's relationships. So I know my introduction was a little bit lengthier than usual, but I just want to unpack here two basics for believers that Jesus gives us. Again, I told you this morning, I'm sorry if you were wanting something new. I don't have it for you. But sometimes we just need to be reminded. We need to be brought back to the basics. Here they are. Number one, we are commanded to love God. I want to say that again because that was a carefully constructed sentence. We are commanded to love God. The greatest commandment is to love God with all that we have. Our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, our possessions, our service. Love God with all of it. But what I'm burdened about as a pastor and as I minister to people, that loving God can easily be confused with other things. Say, so what do you mean? I think some people love ideas about God. We have not been commanded to love ideas about God. We have been commanded to love God. Can I just say this to you tonight? We need to love God for who He is, not who we want Him to be. We need to love God for who He has declared Himself to be. So when has He declared Himself? This is the revelation of God to man. God has told us specifically and clearly who He is. And we are guilty of idolatry when we decide what we want God to be for ourselves. I think sometimes we, we have this idea that maybe God is some white middle class Republican voting American. And He's not. God is who he has declared himself to be. And I, I grow weary of hearing people say, well, I, I just don't think God would do that. Or I, I just think God would understand. Listen, God has told us who he is. And God has told us what he expects. And woe be unto us when we fall in love with our concepts and our ideas about God. Sometimes we fall in, in love with things that are associated with God. 
We fall in things, uh, meaning this, we, we sometimes love our church instead of loving God. But don't misunderstand me. I hope, I, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm just going to do that. How many of you love your church tonight? Yeah, you can say amen right there. I saw a lot of hands go up, and uh, you love your church. That's great. I'm glad you love your church. But do you understand what I'm saying to you tonight? It is possible to love your church without loving God. Now, I will tell you, it's not possible to love God without loving your church. But you can love your church without loving God. I have known people like this, like, bless God, I was here before you came, and I'll be here after you came, and my granddaddy put the bricks there in this house. Oh, they love their church, but how much do they love God? I'm going to say this. A lot of people love their pastor. I'm going to put you on the spot again. He's in here. How many of you love your pastor? Amen. I'm glad you love your pastor. How many think it's a biblical thing to love your pastor? Oh, absolutely it is. And I'm glad you take care of your pastor. And I'm glad you, you've loved his, your pastor and his family, especially through some of the tough times they've been. You, you love them and you've girded them up with love. But I'm going to tell you, I've learned that there can be seasons and can be places where people love their pastor without loving God. And we have seen that where some have even attacked pastoral leadership and authority because there have been groups of people that have centered around a personality instead of centering around the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I want to tell you, it's impossible. If you love God, you will love your pastor. But you can love your pastor without loving God. Why? Because sometimes we fall in love with things that are associated with God instead of actually loving God. And you understand he said here that you love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And Jesus was not compartmentalizing love into three or four categories. What he was doing is he was teaching us the comprehensiveness of a love for God. And so he points out the heart. What is the heart? The heart is the core of one's personal being. That's why in Proverbs 4.23 it says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So what we need to do is love God with everything that we are. Everything from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. We just love God. We ooze with love for God. And then he points out the soul. And that kind of goes with some of the things that we heard today. I love the fact that the choir sang this morning, My God is real, for I can... Feel him. Listen, I, I want to tell you tonight, would you indulge me for just a second? I was Baptist born and Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. And I understand all of that. But one of the flaws and, and, and errors of Baptist folks is they get scared to death of anything emotional. In fact, uh, I, I'm putting him on the spot, but your pastor was even saying in the invitation today, he was talking about feelings, and he was like, I don't know how else to describe it. And it was almost like you're apologizing for feeling. And, and, and no, we shouldn't do that, and we do it. Because I know in my church, if somebody gets happy and goes, whoa, everybody goes, who's that? It's a Baptist church. We ain't going charismatic around here. You know? You might say, well, I got that good old time religion down in my heart. And I said, well, you didn't get it here, buddy. Settle down. You know? Right? And we just get, and I understand, I understand why we feel that way, don't I? Because our head is supposed to be over our heart, and sometimes we can get so emotional that we lose our brain. We don't want to do that, but I'm going to tell you, Jesus told us to love him with our emotions. Man, this evening we were singing that song, He's My All in All. Man, I, I tell you, every once in a while a song ought to take place, you ought to wipe away a tear from your eye. I mean, and if you don't feel it, I, I know my dad, my dad's a quiet man. He's a very quiet, uh, stoic, reserved kind of man. And I remember one time he told me, he said, Michael, I know you like it when people say amen in church. And he goes, I'm going to tell you, I've tried. He said, I just can't do it. He said, I want to. 
Every once in a while, I feel it welling up, and I want to say amen. He said, I, I just can't, and I don't. He said, is there something wrong with me? I said, Dad, there's nothing wrong with you. That's your personality. I said, what I'm glad I get to hear is that you at least want to every once in a while. And you may not kick your shoes off and run around, whoa, praise the Lord, but do it. I mean, seriously, does every now and then you, you, you want to at least? <laughs> Man, Jesus said, love me with your emotions. Love me with your emotions. Love me with your mind. With your intellect. That's willful vigor. It's a determination. From all of these things, we can gather what genuine love for God looks like. And I want to tell you tonight, there needs to be an authentic love for God that starts with God-oriented affections and desires and thoughts. It permeates through our speaking and our behavior. It influences us in every area of our life, the way we spend our money, how we dress, how we drive on the road, how we indulge in forms of entertainment. I'm not trying to get on hobby horses, but I'm going to tell you, I'm not here long enough to address every sin that we deal with and every struggle that we have, but I'm telling you tonight that if we love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our emotions and all of our mind and all of our intellect, all of those other things will take care of themselves whether we're eating whether we're singing whether we're on the internet whether we're texting whether we're drawing our love for God is to be seen in our actions and I remind you tonight that as Jesus looked at these men and he told them you're to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind he was reminding them as he reminds us tonight that God has never sought empty words he has never sought empty rituals what he has sought after is a heart that loves him. Number two, we're commanded to love people. And boy, that can be hard sometimes. You've heard that poem before, to dwell above with those we love, well, that will be glory. To dwell below with those we know, well, that's a different story. <laughs> Loving people can sometimes be difficult. But I want to remind you tonight, love for God cannot be divorced from loving your neighbor. And Jesus here quotes Leviticus 19, 18. And he tells us that if there is a real love for God, there will be a real love for other people. In fact, the criterion of whether or not love for God is real is reflected in how we love other people, according to 1 John. That's Bible. Some people, I've learned, are strong on ethics, but they're very weak on relationships. You know, it's, they're the kind of people like the Pharisees. That's the rule. Listen, I understand that we need rules. Our society needs rules. Everything needs some rules. Otherwise, it's, it's chaos and anarchy. But remember, rules are there to protect people, not so much the opposite. But I think while others have made a negative reaction towards rules and ethics, they begin loving others, but they don't stress loving God. That's why you hear people say foolish things in our culture like this. Aren't Christians supposed to be loving? And they usually say that within the context of abandoning God's moral law. And the reason we don't abandon God's moral law is we love God more than we love others. But if we love God, we will love others. The key to loving others is loving God. Look at verse 39 again. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus wasn't commanding men to love themselves. Jesus automatically assumes that you already do that. As I look around this room, that assumption is correct. 
All I have to say is one word. Selfie. I have seen teenagers do it. Middle-aged women who think they're teenagers do it. I've seen grandmas do it. Everybody is, knows how to care for themselves. You think about it. When we're hungry, we feed ourselves. I told you, of course, that we have five children. And so it is never quiet at our house. It is never boring at our house. And one time when my children were younger, we were eating at a Chinese restaurant. And we were sitting around a round table, which is more customary in China. And in the center of that table had a lazy Susan. You understand what a lazy Susan is? A round piece that is on ball bearings and it'll move. And so we were sitting there eating and everybody could see each other and we were all fellowshipping and it was family style food on there and we were all spinning that lazy Susan and we thought to ourselves, wouldn't this be nice to have at our house? And we, my wife and I had had a table that when we first got married we had and it was falling to pieces and we needed a new table and so instead of taking a vacation we paid an Amish man to build us a six foot in diameter round table with a lazy Susan in the middle. It's one of the best investments we've ever made in our life because I felt like it's much better than paying and going on some trip that'll be over in a week. I think about how many hours and how many conversations and how many memories will be uh, made around this table. And I wanted it made quality. That's why we had an Amish builder make it because I felt like I wanted my kids to argue over that table when I'm dead and gone. <laughs> and so we got that table and boy, it's been a blessing. We've had it for several years now. But... Here's what happens with my children. My wife will make a wonderful meal, one of our favorites maybe, and she'll put that all around the uh, Lazy Susan, and she'll put it in order of how you need to serve it as you spin it around. I mean, there's some thought that goes into that, but here's what happens, is they do what probably your kids would do. They're hungry, and they want to eat. And as they sit there at the table, they look around the table, and there are six other people beside themselves that are hungry as well. If you've grown up in a big family, you know, it's feast or famine, bub. And so let's say Mindy puts down that basket of fresh baked homemade bread and she puts that down there and, and that bread is getting eyeballed. And I'll say, well, let's pray. And, and, and you know how it is. You remember when your kids were little, dad, Matthew didn't have his eyes closed. You know, how do you know? Uh, 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 right, you know? And so we're praying and they're, eyeballing what they want. And I, I've watched them do this. Put their little finger on that lazy Susan <laughs> while I'm praying. Just kind of give it a little bit of a nudge and a turn and while they're rising up out of their seat. And at, at, as soon as you say amen, it's, ah, you know. Why? That's naturally how we are. When we are hungry, we feed ourselves. When we are sick, we... We take care of ourselves, we, we nurse ourselves, we get medicine, we go to the doctors, we, we take care of ourselves, we are consumed with caring for ourselves, and that, that's natural. We don't just think about it or talk about it, we do it. Well, that's the way we need to be for other people. Don't just talk about how much you love other people. Naturally take care of and look after other people. Man, what is that person's need? Uh, this is church ought to be thinking, and I know you do, but I'm just reminding you. Hey, I wonder if that person that's been coming, I wonder if they're saved. I wonder if there's some kind of need in their life. I want to make sure they don't sit by themselves. 
I wonder if anybody's ever taken them out to lunch. I wonder, uh, what are their needs in their life that maybe I can meet? You see, tonight, and I'll close here because the point has already been made, but love may not make the world go around, but it sure does make the trip worthwhile. Man, I, man, you've got a great thing here. But I think one of the things that makes a great thing is the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we love each other. And when you love each other, you just want to be around each other. You want to care for each other and serve with one another, encourage one another and correct one another. It's all there. I'll give you a little fictitious story as I close. I heard a story of a boss. He was, he was having a bad day. So he came in the office, and he's just having a bad day. I mean, things were going bad business-wise, and he had, had some tough phone calls where people had bawled him out, and business wasn't good, and so he's just upset, and you know how it is when you're upset. So now he's going to take it out on somebody else, and he sees an employee sitting there that hadn't done anything, and that boss just balls out that employee for no reason. The employee's thinking, man, what did I do? I... Man, I, I didn't even do anything, and the guy's all mad at me, and he's yelling at me, and so now his good day has turned into a bad day. So as soon as he gets, in, gets home, he's been stewing about this all the way in the drive home, and as soon as he walks through the door, there's his wife, and she's glad to see him and smiling at him, and, and, and he just fusses at her and, and scowls at her and grunts at her and kind of mistreats her because he's had a bad day, and she thinks to herself the same thing that her husband just thought. Well, what did I do? I don't understand what his problem is. And so now she's in a sour mood and she turns to her 10-year-old son and he's just being a little boy and making a little noise. And so she hollers at him and, and yells at him and says, why don't you be quiet? And uh, can't you see I'm trying to concentrate here and just gives him the what for. And man, he's thinking, good grief. I mean, I, he can't yell back at his mom. He's only 10 years old, you know. And he's thinking, man, this is awful. And so he, he doesn't realize what he did and now he's having a bad day. And so he storms out the back door and there's his dog. And this dog starts wagging his tail, and he's, he's wagging his tongue, and that little boy said, what are you so happy about? And he kicks his dog. And the poor dog's thinking, man, what did I do? So the dog looks over, and here's a stranger walking up the driveway. So the dog goes over, and he bites the stranger. Well, who was the stranger walking up the driveway? It was the boss coming to apologize to his employee. <laughs> I like that little story because, you know, sometimes loving people is hard. Sometimes loving people, lo people can be unlovely. They can be messy. They can use you. They can be a pest. But, you know, we're not just called to love the people we like. We're not just called to the people who are easy. We're supposed to love everybody. And like that little parable, that little fictitious story, just try and shower everybody around you with love because you never know what people are going through. You never know. So let me just ask you some questions tonight. Thank you for listening so well. Question number one is really this. Do you just need to get back to the basics? I haven't told you anything that's blown your socks off tonight. I hope you've learned something about the Bible. But more than anything, I want to just remind you that the basics of Christianity, if you're a saved person, the basics are this. Love God, love other people. So let's ask some questions about that. Question number one, how much do you love God? And you're here tonight, I, I, I know that's probably a redundant rhetorical question. Of course I love God. 
How much do you love him? I wonder how many, is there, how many are here tonight that would say, preacher, I do love God, but I do believe I could love him a little more. Man, I think we could. Here's another question, though, for you. When was the last time you told God you loved him? Think about it, fellas. Men's conference coming up on the weekend. You know, your wife would love to hear from you on a very regular basis that you love her. Our God loves to hear it, too. I think tonight's a great opportunity to bow our knee at an old-fashioned altar and just say, God, I love you. I read where Charles Spurgeon said that one time. He said, I want to be able to lift my eyes to heaven and say, Lord, I love you. And hear my father say, Charles, I know. Do you love God? How much do you love him? Last question is maybe a little bit more difficult. Do you love other people? Is there somebody in your life you've mistreated? Is there somebody that you're harboring bitterness and resentment to? Is there somebody that is a constant irritation to you? That you know you're not loving like you should? Are you consumed with caring for other people? Or have you become consumed with caring for yourself? These are all tough questions for us. Tough questions for me. But Jesus looks us at us tonight and he says, I command you to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And I command you to love others. The whole book hangs on those two things. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting me preach a little bit tonight.